Hello, hello everyone. How are you all keeping? This is Palm Bear introducing our last guest of Season 7, but also here to say that if you're not already up to here in COVID-19 news, we will have a mini-series to follow. So keep your ears tuned to uh, uh, this space. For today's episode, though, join us to hear from Beth Bartel as we talk geoscience and science communication in her episode, Eat the Crust. Listeners, welcome to another episode of our Two Scientists podcast. I'm your host, Pam Beba here, and today we are coming from the lovely abode of Mel and Rocco. For those who have been listening to us over the years, you might remember Mel's podcast, The Volcano Seismologist, which was many, many years ago now. Um, but if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to that because she's awesome and it's very fun. Um, but our guest today is actually Beth Bartel. How are you doing, Beth? I am doing wonderfully, thank you. I'm enjoying being in Florida. I was about to ask you, so how's Tampa been treating you so far? Quite nice. I was promised sunshine, and there has been some sunshine. I'll admit I'm uh, I'm ready to come back. I'm ready to come back to get a little <laughs> bit more sun next time. It, it has been uh, unreasonably uh, cold and rainy today. But you got out to the beach anyway. Yes, and I got to fly uh, a stunt kite for the first time, a which stunt was kite. pretty awesome. Yeah, it t- turns out Mel not only is a volcano seismologist, but also a stunt kite aficionado and Oof. a good stunt kite teacher. So I was able to fly a stunt kite for the first time and uh, crashed it, of course, but also <laughs> eventually was able to land it more or less without crashing it, more or less intentionally. What is a stunt kite? So it is a kite that has multiple strings attached to multiple places and allows you to control it. So I don't know that all stunt kites require at least two hands, but these, the kites that we were flying, um, you have a hand for each of the sides of the kite and uh, can control the lift on the kite. And of course, um, as a scientist, it'd be great if I knew a little bit more about aerodynamics and (laughs) Mel was able to ask me about that. You know, how much do you know about airplanes and flying? And I'm like, I'm a science communication specialist and my background's in volcanoes and I don't know a lot about airplanes. I know people who are aerospace engineers, me, not one. Um, so, so yeah, but, uh, um, I, I was really going more by, by feel than physics. Uh, but yeah, stunt kite, it's great because you can, you can control them. You can make them do things. That sounds very cool. Once you're talented enough to do so. <laughs> you can work on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I actually, I may be convinced that, that I want to get my own. So I'll have plenty of time to break my own kite instead of Mel's. <laughs> Very good. That's the goal. <laughs> Goodness. Almost five minutes in and we're already off track. Not yeah, to worry. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> Welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> so since we're here to talk about science, let's talk about your journey into science. So how sure. you took the particular path that you did and what it is that you're doing for a living now. Oh boy. Yep. Okay. So it's really hard to do a short version of this because it's not at all straightforward. So we um, got time. Oh, great. <laughs> so I'm really glad that this podcast is four and a half hours long. So, <laughs> um, my journey into science. My journey into science may have started in fifth grade when I decided I wanted to be a paleontologist because my friend Amy, who was older than me, wanted to be a paleontologist. That's mainly why we started rock collecting together. I didn't actually know what a paleontologist did, <laughs> but since Amy was older than me and I thought she was really cool, obviously... I wanted to be a paleontologist. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a bunch of years, and in college, I um, I, I wanted to do environmental studies of some sort because um, I have always been pretty passionate about um, people and the world we live in and our environment and pretty pretty curious and wanting to problem solve too. A curious problem solver, I would say. Um, and in college, uh, I had to pair environmental studies with something, chose geology because all geology classes have field trips. So that's fun mm-hmm. and adventure. So I ended up actually getting talked into taking a geology class. Uh, never took an environmental studies class at my school and um, just fell, fell in love with geology. I uh, may be one of the most indecisive people I know, <laughs> painfully so. Anybody out there who's listening who knows me is going to be nodding like feverently right now. Like, yes, yes. If anybody knows her, yes, super indecisive. It's terrible. I declared my geology major my first semester of my first year of college, which is nothing short of a miracle. <laughs> um, and and then by the end of college, I was super interested in natural hazards. And I think, which I was terrified of as a child. I 
really want to make that clear, really terrified of. And I think the reason that I became really fascinated with natural hazards is because I was so disillusioned with the way we were treating our environment that I saw natural hazards as a way of the earth kind of hitting back and a reminder Uh of humility of how small we are in the grand scheme of this planet and how with so many things like earthquakes and volcanoes, really the best we can do is get out of the way. We're Mm -hmm. not in control. And, um, and I became really fascinated. They may sound a little bit morbid, but also I just feel like it's a really good lesson of, you know, they don't have to be natural disasters. Um, we can get out of the way, but it's, it's really a lesson in us understanding our limits as humans. Um, and so I became really interested in natural hazards, applied for this amazing fellowship to study how communities deal with volcanic hazards around the world in different cultures. And then I didn't get the fellowship. Boo. I know. Would you have given it to me? Sure. Sure. Okay. But having known nothing about your work <laughs> until about five minutes ago. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, but what came out of that um, was that I, I talked to the people I had been connected with through that um, and ended up going to Indiana University to work with a Dr. Michael Hamburger who knew the brother of the student activities director of my college who I worked for. So of course, direct connections are what always mm-hmm. get us our next step, right? So um, so he said, come come do some work with me. And, um, and I did. So I went and I worked with him on an active volcano in the Philippines that happened to erupt a few weeks ago to all volcano. Um, and I, I didn't go with any specific interest in that science. I was really interested in hazards. I was interested in volcanoes. I had an opportunity to work on an active volcano. It happened to be with GPS. So I was basically thrown into, here's some technology for you to learn. So not an intentional choice, but that's how I ended up there. And then through that connected with UNAVCO where I work now, because they're an organization that supports science. They were supporting that project. And one of the people on the project was this field engineer who was with us to help install some equipment. And then after that, he was going to go help somebody else install some equipment somewhere else in the world. And I was Mm -hmm. like, well, that sounds cool. I wonder (laughs) if I could do that someday. And um, so after I finished my master's, I actually, after a few more little steps and hiccups, um, got a job as a field engineer with UNAVCO. And so that's what I got to do for four years was travel around and make measurements in different parts of the world with different scientists doing different things, volcanoes, glaciers, earthquakes, plate tectonics, fantastic experiences, super awkward experiences, all the experiences (laughs) in between, everything that comes with field work. And then I thought, you know, I, um, I really, um, love communication. What I didn't mention was I was also a Spanish major in undergrad, uh-huh. Spanish language and literature. Entonces hablas español. Sí, hablo español. <laughs> Más o menos. Um, I was, I lived in Spain for a year as an exchange student, um, in high school, very fortuitously. And, um, and so I just, I've always been a, a language person and a communication person. And um, I felt for me that field engineering wasn't using my strongest talents and that there was something else I wanted to do with, with my space and my place in the world. And so, um, so I worked part-time for a while, which I think is pretty important to note because uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. It wasn't like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm still awesome and I'm doing this and this is amazing. And you know, one thing after another, amazing opportunities. No, I spent a couple of years where I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing and what's next. And here I am working part-time, kind of one foot in, one foot out. And then I decided to go back to school for journalism. And so I did that. And I thought, I'm going to explore whatever the heck I want, not necessarily science even. Um, you know, but I feel like I just kind of stumbled into this whole thing and, um, and I want to do something a little more intentional. And that intentional thing ended up being going back to an active volcano in Ecuador and talking to people living around that volcano. So basically doing the thing that I wanted to do when I was graduating from college. Um, And I learned an incredible, amazing amount by talking to people living around this active volcano about why they live there, what kept them there, um, where they put their faith and their trust and where they got their information and um, made that into a capstone project where I put together a bunch of audio slideshows. So photography, storytelling, people stories, hazards, 
volcano um, and then got the job that I'm in now. And, and that was another point in my career where I thought, okay, I'm going to fly. I've been a boulder all this time. I'm going to go live somewhere else. I'm going to the East coast. I'm going into communications. I'm doing something different. And my current boss said, Hey, do you want to come work for us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's this job in communications. And I was like, Oh, right. This community that I know really well and like, and science that I'm actually really interested in because the earth is an amazing, amazing, amazing place and communications. Okay. You wanted the long answer, right? <laughs> You're right. I don't think I have any questions now. I go home. Um, no, that was awesome. I, d- I don't know if you practice that a lot, but it comes across as quite seamless. Well, I did get to chat about it once or twice in the last couple of days. I think that it's really important for us to hear each other's career paths because I think especially um, especially in academia, um, but I think in science and research in general, we look at a scientist or probably anybody in any career path in any stage and we think that somehow where they are now is their final destination and somehow oh, yeah. they got there intentionally. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably not here forever. I mean, certainly not on this planet forever, but I'm, you know, what's, what's my next step from this position? I don't know. I'm enjoying it now and I'm looking to what else I want to grow into. Um, and I, um, I didn't know this job existed when I was in college and Mm -hmm. so I couldn't even envision it. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people I talk to, a lot of students I talk to, um, I like to point out that we can bring our full selves and a bunch of different interests and it's okay to not know exactly what we want to do. It's a tough place to be in, but it's okay because not everybody knows. And people are usually like, Oh, really? It's not just me. I'm like, no secrets out. It's not just you. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. And this is why we like asking scientists essentially their origin stories, Mm -hmm. because there is no one way to get there. And the majority of people do not, I mean, I say that, it sounds kind of hypocritical because I literally did the, I did this in high school. I wanted to do this at college. I wanted to do this and I wanted to do my PhD. And I essentially went down that single track to get where I am. Um, but yeah, there's almost no other story from the people that we've interview, interviewed that falls into that category. So I love hearing about how people get to, to where they are. And yours is particularly interesting because the number of people that we know now who would want to do science communication as a legitimate career is definitely on the rise, certainly from my, my biased uh, polling on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, there are a lot of scientists there and a lot of people who are, they know that science is a pyramid scheme. They're not going to become a PI or a professor and... Uh, they have, as you say, other interests, and those include things that are much more artistic and much more journalistic, and they want to be able to share the work with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so your your current job is science communication related to? Related to geodesy. So there's yes. a fun one. I am a science communication specialist for a place called UNAVCO, and we do geodesy. Who the heck is UNAVCO and what the heck is geodesy? Yes, please tell me. I have no challenges in my job whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So, so UNAVCO is, um, we're an organization, we're nonprofit, independent. Um, we are university governed. So our board of directors is, uh, they're all from, from universities. Um, and we are, we basically exist to facilitate science to help with science and education um, in the realm of what is called geodesy geodesy is a science of measuring our planet its shape its orientation in space its rotation its gravitational field and how all these things change over time what's really interesting are the applications of that so that sounds pretty maybe pretty out there and esoteric and you know Fundamentally, who cares um, beyond maybe curiosity? Well, if we're making high precision measurements of our planet's shape and how it changes over time, and those measurements are really precise, we can measure plate tectonics. We can measure motions leading up to earthquakes, during earthquakes, what happens after earthquakes. In my case, I was using um, high precision GPS, which is one of our tools, to measure the slow, subtle inflation and deflation of a volcano. So things we can't see with our eyes, but that reflect what's going on within the earth. So on volcanoes, as as their magmatic systems pressurize or depressurize, or their hydrothermal systems, anything that's going to pressurize, depressurize, it actually changes the shape of the volcano. 
usually subtly. But if we have instruments out there, we can see um, what's happening with the earth and understand better how our earth works, how these processes work. And then that can inform our understanding of hazards. And then that can under, uh, uh, inform our understanding of ideally how to mitigate hazards and how to, uh, how to mitigate the damage that, that can come with these earth hazards. Mm-hmm. One of the fun things about watching people talking about science is appreciating the fact that a lot of science communication is body language. So the, the problem with an audio <laughs> medium is that people can't see what you're doing with your hands, which is to express kind of like this expanding of a volcano, which is fun. Right. Yes. Yep. Analogies are great. And they don't always uh, <laughs> come across on <laughs> on audio when you can't see our hand motions. We'll have yes. to try and get a video of her later. <laughs> um, That's right. Yes. But one of the other things that you do is actually train people to yes. improve their own science communication skills. So tell us about that. Yeah. But that is one of my favorite parts of my job because that is one of the most rewarding parts of my job. Um, it's really fun for me and uh, it's really gratifying to see people um, grow over the course of just just a couple hours. So what I get to do is take materials that other organizations have developed and materials that I've developed and materials even better that I've developed with my colleagues um, and, um, and, and bring these activities to groups of students, professionals, whoever, um, people who are interested in improving their communication skills and um and everything i like to do is really interactive really hands-on gets people up and moving and interacting and thinking and walking out hopefully with a sense that they can can better communicate their science whatever it is so whatever it is that they're researching um recognizing how to developing how to best communicate that or how to better communicate that to people outside their specialty and also sort of recognizing or refreshing themselves on why they're, what they're doing matters. I think we get into the weeds a lot and get into the details a lot with what we're doing with science. And, and sometimes it's easy to forget the bigger picture. And so it's fun to, to see people get to that bigger picture and also get to know each other. I'm yeah, just a people person and group <laughs> dynamics I think are amazingly interesting. And um, so, yeah. It's, uh, it's really fun to help people to learn how to better communicate. And one thing that I also really like is teaching people really basic communication skills and how to communicate best with a general public. Because I think if we can learn how to communicate in person with a general public audience, a multi-generational audience at a fair, at a farmer's market, um, that improves our communication skills for anybody, policymakers, our peers, uh, teaching our intro students, talking to our friends and family, all of that improves with basic communication skills. So we've just seen a load of Chinese food arrive. So I think we should tuck into that. I'm also very amused by how people are tiptoeing around and whispering in the background. <laughs> we can hear you. <laughs> it's okay. You're not on the mic. <laughs> so i'm gonna put this on hold for a second we'll see how this goes uh now that we are entering our chinese food coma yes the post dinner the post dinner lazies the slowdowns yes what is it called there's a southern word for it the itis oh you ever heard that one no yeah one of my colleagues is from south carolina and that's a thing yeah I feel it. Yes, whatever it is. <laughs> whatever it is, I'm feeling it now. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so going back to the subject of science communication and uh, training the scientists, are there particular things that scientists, after your courses, realize they're doing really badly? Are there certain things that completely blow their mind after doing Completely blow their mind. Well, the thing that blows my mind, actually, is that um, one of the things that comes out on, on top as one of the most useful things we do is going over jargon and words that are specific to our fields. And that, to me, seems like one of the most basic skills of, I figure people would be thinking, yeah, 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 of course. Like, I know that I'm not supposed to wor use words and vocabulary that's specific to my discipline. And while people probably understand that, 
most people walk away saying that that is one of the most valuable things to actually go through and start to recognize what the things are that not everybody else recognizes. And one of the exercises that I that I like to do that we um, use as a homework assignment um, for classes where we have follow-ons is we ask participants to basically do a number of interviews. Uh-huh. A little different than this interview. They don't have to have microphones, no soundboard, no photographer. Um, <laughs> but to do some informal interviews and actually write down the questions or things they want to know ahead of time. And we challenge them to, to try to learn what people outside their field do and don't know. So think about something you want to communicate um, and then ask a few questions like, um, you know, one, one question for somebody who's in geoscience might be, well, okay, I study earthquakes. Do, do most people know what plate tectonics is? Do most people understand that? When I say seismic, do people understand that word? And so we, we challenge people to go out and, and do some interviews with friends, family, strangers. We had one person strike up a conversation with a couple next to him at the bar and just out of the blue started asking them these questions. And, um, and people come back saying that they're surprised at what they take for granted, what other people don't know. I thought everybody knew how earthquakes started, and I thought everybody knew what plate tectonics was, and like you know, really understood what plate tectonics is. Um, and and also, there are people who think that nobody else is going to be interested in their science, and once they start actually talking to people about it, they're like, oh, people were interested in my science. People actually wanted to know more, and we're like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's because you finally created a level playing field. Yeah. And what we do is really interesting. And just because you assume that nobody else is interested in your thing, I'm making air quotes, um, right? Like people who are geoscientists, we're, the, the planet is amazingly fascinated. So of course, we're interested in in how our planet works, if we can talk about it in a way that's that's understandable and that doesn't make assumptions about prior knowledge but allows for curiosity yeah i i think one of the bigger problems is potentially that scientists do this to each other they assume so much background knowledge when they give talks that the number of talks i've been to where i just tune out i'm like dude that's it i'm done you can keep talking but you lost me within the first five minutes and i'm somebody who works in a very similar field yeah absolutely absolutely so we there's a huge geophysics meeting called American Geophysical Union, their their annual fall meeting, uh, tens of thousands of people, like 22, 24,000 people come to the meeting. And one of the complaints that I hear a lot of, and I may make myself also over the years, is that there are so many talks going on simultaneously, and you can go into one room where there are presentations, and people in that room will go into the next room over and wouldn't understand the mm -hmm. talk in the next room over because our vocabulary is so specialized and we use all this specialized vocabulary in this presentations. And, and if we're talking about trying to increase our reach and in, in uh, increasing or encouraging cross-disciplinary research, we're really shooting ourselves in the foot by not making our science more accessible. And mm -hmm. a really simple way to do that is just to use simpler language, even when we're talking to scientific peers. Yeah, for sure. Um, so David says, uh, is there any common or big misunderstanding about your field that you'd like us and our listeners to know? Oh, geez. Okay, let's see. Um, this is the kind of question that catches me off guard. Big <laughs> misunderstanding about my field. Okay, well, well, sure. I'll say that um, I think one misunderstanding is uh, if if we're thinking about geoscience or geology in general, I think a big misunderstanding is that uh, we all study rocks, which mm -hmm. we don't. I'm definitely not a rock person myself. I mean, I think rocks are cool. And like I said earlier, <laughs> I collected rocks when nothing I was against in rocks. fifth grade. Nothing against <laughs> rocks. Nothing against people who study rocks. Rocks, definitely not my thing. Processes are my thing. I'm interested in how the earth moves. I'm interested in how rocks get from one place to another maybe you know studying things that i can see happening on the surface um but the actual rocks themselves are are not my thing and for a lot of geoscientists that's not our thing there's a lot more to geoscience and while i personally love fieldwork fieldwork is not the only thing about geoscience either so there is a lot of computer science physics math so for people who 
don't want to go out in the field, for people who want to work in a lab or work on a computer, there are tons of geoscience problems that have to do with big data, that have to do with crunching numbers, that have to do with making observations, but not outside. So for people who don't want to go outside, there are a ton of really interesting and really important and really societally important problems to tackle. Yeah, and so one of the things that I remember you talking about at the workshop you held a couple of days ago uh, was this idea that you draw upon social sciences in order to do your current work. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, so um, so geoscience, uh, that's where I draw the information from that I, that I convey and get really excited about. Um, social science is what really informs us when it comes to how we communicate. So um, if we want to be heard, if we want to get information out there, get our research out there, share what we're learning, uh, we really need to look to the social scientists who have been looking at these problems for years. And social scientists could be people in, um, the ones who can help us with messaging might be people in, um, in a communications department, marketing, advertising, uh, business, these are all people who think a lot about how other people think. Psychology, um, how other people think. Uh, let me back up on that. Not how other people think, how people think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? Studying how people think. Um, and as a scientist, I think, uh, especially physical scientists, I think, think that we or they think differently than other people. And, um, in some ways, yes, and we're all human, and we're all driven by our emotions, and we're all driven by our frameworks and our backgrounds, and that's where the social science really helps us to understand how people best learn, how people best understand different concepts, um, and in in my field, which is most specifically in, in hazards, how we understand risk, how we make decisions, um, all of these questions fall in the realm of social science. So if we want to be heard and if we want what we're learning to actually be useful and applied, we need to understand our audiences and um, how to best present that information and also how to listen to what other people need and what other people have to offer. Yeah, I think one of the things I found particularly galling at the, the workshop that you had was a student that came up afterwards and said that his work is a much more uh, social because I think he is kind of doing this uh, work between uh, the interface between the geophysicists or geoscientists and um, the populations who then be affected by the hazards and him being told by a colleague that he wasn't a real scientist for doing that. Yes. You can't see me cringing if you're just listening. This was a really painful moment, I think, for 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 both of us, you yeah. and I, and probably for him as well. Um, that is really frustrating to hear. I feel like there's a real perceived hierarchy um, in in research, and whatever research we're researching is somehow better than what somebody else is researching. And I've seen that hierarchy in different ways. So. Um, geologists get that from physicists, for example. So somehow some people's science is better than other people's science, which is, of course, I think ridiculous. And so for somebody to tell this, this person, the scientist, that his research was somehow less valid or less science than what other people were doing is, is ridiculous. And I think a lot of physical scientists take social science for granted. And social science is, it's a rigorous field. It's very theory-based. It's very methods-based. There are different approaches. Um, there is There are a lot of uncertainties and a lot of unknowns. And let's be real, in geophysics, there are a ton of uncertainties and a ton of unknowns. We can't see what's under the sur surface of the earth. So we're constantly making guesses. Good guesses, informed guesses, rigorous quantitative guesses based on things that we can't see. Mm -hmm. And so social science is, is um, it's no less valid than any other science. And it's, uh, again, it's what we need to be looking to if we really want to have impact um, in the world, especially impact outside our peer group of other scientists. Yeah. And I think... 
What was particularly maddening about this is the beginning of the session, you also talked about imposter syndrome. The idea that you feel like you're not good enough to be doing what you're doing. And for somebody to be told that their entire field is illegitimate is just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. There's not a lot more to say to that. Um, I'm sure we could both say a few more things about that. But right, it's hard enough. It's hard enough for us to feel comfortable in our own skin and for us to feel comfortable in what we're doing. And I think some people are able to do that naturally, at least for a while. And I think we all have moments where we're questioning who we are and what we're doing. And um, and I don't think any any of us has the right to or the need to. Um, judge other people and add to that uh that questioning in other people it's uh it's yeah not not ours to judge and not productive and not helpful and uh yes i think we all we all belong in wherever we're choosing to be yes and i'm guessing that if this person is in geosciences at USF, chances are they're actually working on something like earthquakes or volcanoes or something, which, I mean, studying for the sake of studying it, maybe that's why you're doing it, but presumably most people are doing it because they're worried about the outcomes, the human outcomes. It seems particularly daft to me. It, uh, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> agreed. So uh, David has another question, and he says, in other fields, science communication has to fight not just a lack of interest in the subject but pseudoscience so medicine has alternative medicine and anti-vaccination biology has intelligent design physics has flat earth what about geological sciences yeah there's a there's a lot in geological sciences um a lot of uh, pseudoscience some which is maybe not particular particularly damaging or detrimental uh, in the long run and some that can be really damaging and dangerous. So um, a lot of the, su- uh, the pseudoscience has to do with um, hazards like volcanoes and earthquakes. Um, uh, sensationalism around both of those, especially with volcanoes, for example, Yellowstone, a lot of sensationalism around Yellowstone and whether it's going to blow. Uh, Every time there's any news about Yellowstone, just about um, there are people who are not geoscientists, who are not working, researching at Yellowstone, um, either journalists or people who have opinions about Yellowstone, who... um, are propagating the idea that Yellowstone is dangerous, it's going to blow, this change means it's going to blow, and uh, people like the government are hiding information. This can be really tempting to believe, and it can be really dangerous because people's mental health is, is at stake. So it's not that there's nothing at risk here. So there are people who genuinely worry about Yellowstone erupting and other volcanoes erupting. And when we're propagating this idea that, yep, something's going to happen and we're doing that to click clicks on our tabloid page or our YouTube page, that's actually affecting people. That's taking advantage of people and it's getting, it's getting money. It's very selfish. Um, and that's something that's very frustrating and it undermines people's ability to make good decisions based on the actual information which is publicly available through mm-hmm. web pages like USGS. Another example is earthquake prediction. Um, some people say they can predict earthquakes. It's not actually possible to predict earthquakes. We wish we had that science. We don't. Um, the best we can do is is have better understandings of what can happen and prepare in those places for what we know can happen. We don't know when it's going to happen. Um, and that also is is not only selfish because the people who again perpetuate these ideas that they can predict earthquakes and that other people can as well if they pay mm-hmm. them to learn um this is very self-serving for those people and it's also damaging because it's uh again potentially causing anxiety that's unnecessary and it also undermines the actual science from usgs and other or uh, other agencies, other scientists who are working in this field and are actually trying to get good information out. And then we also can can talk about climate change. And I think 
I think um, when we're undermining the science behind climate change, the actual research, we are undermining our abilities to uh, mitigate problems that we're facing and adapt to any problems we're facing. So by denying the science and pushing things aside, um, listening to the minority of research um, and um, a lot of voices that have nothing to do with the actual climate research, mm-hmm. we're, we're really shooting ourselves in the foot because we're losing time and an opportunity to improve our quality of life for the future. Um, Another long answer, but that is a whole yes. that is a whole can of worms you just opened there. This is true. <laughs> it's all David's fault. <laughs> That's uh, right. That's right. That not was the David's. pseudoscience, just the question. Um, so, given that we're we're talking about uh, better information, making it out into the public realm, I think most of us agree that scientists either need to be doing the work, or they need to be working with people who can get the information out there for them, if they're good science communicators. Um, so Mel asks, some scientists who want to start outreach and science communication are afraid of how to explain their science in a way that's simple enough, but is still factually correct. Any advice for those starting out? Yes. Um, I love this problem because I love problem solving and it's, it's tricky. The balance between accuracy and simplicity is tricky. I am, um, I'm a cautious optimist. So this is one of those places where I'm optimistic and, um, and I think we can have both that that accuracy and simplicity. I think it's not easy. I think it means using simpler terms, more analogies, metaphors, comparisons, um, and um, in a lot of cases, more words, and choosing potentially to convey less information. So it really forces us to think about what's the main concept? What's really important? What do I want to say? We practice that a lot on Twitter. What's the main thing I want to say? And focusing on that and being able to let go of the details, which probably aren't important for our audience anyway. Mm-hmm. So if we if we step back, see bigger picture, stay with a simpler concept, we can generally generally be true to the accuracy, I think, that we that we want. Yeah. I think ultimately it depends on your audience. So if you have a reasonable feel for what their level of understanding probably is and what you're going to be able to tell them. It'll advise how you get the information to them. <laughs> this is really strange. Did I reply to you? <laughs> I <don't> rep- <laughs> they're, they're texting okay, so- <laughs> while we're trying to talk. It's really distracting and rude. Oh, so what are my opinions on, um, on texting these days? Well, <laughs> when it interrupts interviews, I feel really, um, Okay, people, really so there's a legitimate used. reason we do this. We have people who are shy about asking questions, and so they text them to me. <laughs> Mel is not one of those people, Mel is for not the record. No, for quite. the record. <laughs> but she asked the question, and I think it's got one of these, it, because my phone has those suggestions from Google, those auto-responds. Oh, goodness. But my response to her question, <laughs> she okay. says, any advice for those starting out? And my response is, not really. <laughs> My phone is possessed. If you think my response is not really, you don't know me because I will make something up. <laughs> and it'll sound good. I'll try to get close to something. Yes. I'll try to qualify that I'm just on a soapbox when I'm actually just on a soapbox, but it doesn't always happen. Oh, man. Yeah. So, this, oh, goodness. This is nothing to do with much of anything we've spoken okay. about, really, um, except for the fact that, you know, in the last maybe five to ten years it feels like there is a volcano earthquake typhoon hurricane do you think the world's ending Mm. (laughs) (laughs) like seriously (laughs) well okay so so the the um the short uh literal honest answer is yes eventually our sun is going to explode (laughs) and we'll be gone from my understanding from reading my i have this I have this really awesome a book about like kids book about the end of the earth. Um, there are some fantastic kids science books. Um, uh, yes. So, okay. Literally. Yes. Um, if your question is, is the world ending soon and now because we're having all these natural hazards now? Well, 
no, I'm pretty confident. I can't know for sure because, you know, we can never say for sure anything, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that no, because, uh, what we're experiencing now is no different from what we've experienced in pretty much all of humanity. And that's from, uh, on a very serious note, I wanted to ask, is it just that it's being reported more? Yeah. So if it seems like there are more earthquakes now or right now, I mean, what we can do is, uh, is, is science it out. We can plot up earthquakes, um, recorded over time. Um, since we've had a record of earthquakes, uh, we can look at at old texts and try to figure out when there have been earthquakes, come up with a record, um, compare what we think the sizes of these different earthquakes are to see if anything's changed greatly over time. And then what we have to do with that data. So for example, if we look at the the earthquake record over time, we're going to see a bunch of earthquakes and we're going to see a big jump in Rocco. Help me out. What year will we see a big jump in earthquakes? Around 78. We were just talking about this around 78. It was 76 was better anyway. So, (laughs) (laughs) so there was a big jump in earthquakes. Well, what the heck happened in 78? We can't look at just one data set when we want to understand just about anything. I'm sure that's how it is in your field as well. So what we need to ask ourselves before jumping to the conclusion that holy cow, there are more earthquakes in 78. So now the world is obviously, we're obviously heading for an apocalypse. Um, what happened in 78? Well, we established a, uh, a global network of open data of seismic instruments. So the number of recorded earthquakes goes up. That doesn't mean the number of earthquakes goes up. Mm-hmm. So any of these data, anytime it seems like there's more of something or any time that that you know we're we are actually recording more of something, and it seems like we're heading for a, an apocalypse. We need to look really carefully at the data, um, and and ask ourselves, you know, are there actually more? Does it seem like there's more? And we also live in constant bias. So, if I see one volcano in the news, and then I start maybe even looking for well, where are other volcanoes on the news? Holy mm-hmm. cow, there are volcanoes everywhere, and the news erupting. Well, I just started looking for volcanoes in the news. It's like seeing a a green buying a green Volvo and then all of a sudden you see green yes, Volvos everywhere. It happens. Or <laughs> maybe you're We're just, just noticing, noticing them. them more. Yeah. So we have a lot of uh, inherent bias uh, in what we notice and don't. So what we're experiencing right now is pretty typical for the earth. Very good. Yeah. That's what we like to hear. Yeah. Um, it's a dynamic planet. It's an amazing dynamic planet. We're stuck with it. It is. And yeah. this is the weird thing. I think... I mean, certainly for somebody like me, who's completely outside of the field, for the majority of my life, I've probably considered it to be a rock Mm. and Mm -hmm. not thought about it any other way. Yeah, Uh, it's constantly changing. And um, someday I'll I'll write a book about it, maybe. That's the plan. It's been the plan for a while. But um, yeah, it's constantly changing. We think of mountains as these solid things that just stay there. And no, they don't. They erode and they're built and all these plates are moving tectonically and uh, we're in constant motion and constant change. Very good. Um, Mel has another one. Oh, good. She says, we live in Florida. We do. We live in Florida. That's not even a question, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> and people live in evacuation zones. Mm. There are so many reasons people don't or can't evacuate when necessary. Mm-hmm. Does communicating the science, in inverted commas, mm. help in those situations or is it purely social? Mm. That is a good question and one that I am going to, this is where I'm going to uh, um, put the big speculation asterisks because there are probably social scientists who have looked into this and would have a very confident answer. Um, what I am going to say um, is, so here's, here's again my um, optimism of, uh, in terms of communication, I think, I think communicating the science is, it's always only part of the solution and it's an important part of the solution. So communicating the science is the way to get information out there that people, whether it's policy makers or city planners or individual homeowners or individuals living in wherever they're living, um, by communicating the science, we can get information out there that other people can use to make decisions. And that's right. That's only part of 
part of the the puzzle. The other parts have to do with economics. They have to do with accessibility. They have to do with mobility. They have to do with our social networks and our social structures. Um, and the science communication, the important science communication part where that meets the social part is, is we can at least understand the social piece so we can better communicate the mm -hmm. science. Um, and right, we need to understand that these social frameworks and social factors are um, not something to be afraid of because they're not, um, I don't even want to think of them as an obstacle. They're just different pieces of the whole picture of, um, of hazard mitigation and preparedness and life in general. Very neat. And before you perform your own evacuation back to Colorado tomorrow, Aww. I want to say thank you so much for speaking to us today. <laughs> it's been super fun. Um, and yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are very jealous for your psychom job. Oh, <laughs> well, I encourage everybody to give it a try and, uh, and, and get some experience in it. There are a lot of great ways to, to volunteer and start doing it and you know, start making your own podcast or, uh, blogging or writing for other groups. Uh, you could search for UNAVCO science communication, which is U-N-A-V-C-O UNAVCO Science Communication. And down at the bottom of that page, I have some uh, suggestions for opportunities to get some experience for those folks out there who are interested in, in trying their hand at some SciComm. Very neat. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. strange and awkward field stories. Uh, this particular one is one of my favorite. I was in uh, middle of nowhere, Ethiopia, um, northeastern-ish Ethiopia, and we were at a camp uh, out on a dust plain. And um, I ended up in a position of uh, sort of the field, uh, the camp purse. So I was somewhat camp logistics, and I had the camp money for the project and um someone came to me one day and said can we buy a goat for dinner and i said okay sure let's buy a goat and i gave them the money for the goat and i have a picture of the goat and um and they tied up the goat and then somebody came to me later this was somebody from addis ababa the capital this person was a christian and he said uh it's friday we can't eat the goat today's our day of fasting and I was like, hmm, would have been nice for somebody to think of that before they asked about buying the goat. I had no control over this, but okay, right. So we'll keep the goat tied up. So we kept the goat tied up so that everybody could eat it on Saturday because everybody can eat goat on Saturday. So let's do that. And the goat was tied up right between my tent and where I had to go to where the restroom was. And so like every time I had to go to the bathroom, I was like trying not to make eye contact with the goat. Just don't look at the goat. Like eating goat, that's fine. But I don't want to make eye contact with the goat that I'm going to eat. So so that happened. So then the next day, I didn't see it. They butchered the goat. We ate the goat. And then that evening, a Muslim came to me and said, we couldn't eat the goat because it was not butchered in the way that we need it to be butchered. And I was like, okay, next time we get a goat, we're not going to get it on Friday. The Muslims are going to butcher the goat and then everybody can eat the goat. But people, <laughs> I need to know these things. And how did I end up in charge of this camp in the first place? <laughs> I think I'm not qualified for this job. <laughs> but that remains my favorite line item on an expense report that I've submitted, which was goat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to our friends Mel and Rocco for letting us invade their house and to the lovely Chuck and Laura for treating us to a Chinese feast. We thank the aptly named artist Watch for Rocks who allowed us to use the equally aptly named track Volcano for our featured track. 
Find links to their work and, of course, our star guest, Beth Bartel, on our website, twoscientists.org. And if while you're there, you could click on our coffee link and donate a few dollars, we could also be thankful to you. Usually at this stage, I'd be sad we'd come to the end of a season, but we've still got more great content to share in the next few weeks, so you will be hearing from me. Until then, this is me saying adios. Exactly. See, I, well, I totally believed you. Yeah, I mean, I was see? totally right there with you.